0: Hello and welcome to Homestead Hens and Honey, a beekeeping, chicken keeping and general homesteading podcast. I'm your host Gemma and today I am continuing my book review of Honeybee Democracy by Thomas Seeley. Today we are covering chapter eight which is all about how a honeybee swarm flies from its resting place to its chosen nest site and specifically what or which bees are leading the swarm and how they do this. Now before I get into the book review, I want to give some homestead updates. So the first thing I'm going to talk about is Agnes, my red hen who previously wasn't feeling that great. I had her in the house for a while. She's the hen who had water or some kind of fluid in her abdomen and she seemed to improve after antibiotics and pain medication although she was never quite a hundred percent but she obviously missed being out with her flock and she seems to have rallied somewhat now that she's back with her girls and her rooster but I've been keeping an eye on her and generally I just feel like something is going on with her she doesn't seem to be sick per se but you know, her comb is a little floppy, she's still a little thin, she definitely rests a lot more than the other chickens do. But at the same time, she's still foraging, she's still eating, she's still drinking, she is always with Pepper Jack the Rooster. So I really was just kind of coming to terms with the idea that maybe she's just really, really old. Maybe she's just in the final days, maybe weeks, months, of her life and so making peace with this I will be honest that every day is a little bit like am I gonna see Agnes today or am I gonna find her down somewhere and just sort of stuff like that well right when the week that I basically came to peace with this idea of she's an ancient hen because I don't know how old a lot of these girls are because of the circumstances in which I brought them home I just sort of made peace with it and then (laughs) the other day I went to basically lure all the chickens back into the run so I could close them up for the evening. It's what I do every single night to make sure that they're safely locked away because we have you know a lot of raccoons and we have possums and occasionally we've heard coyotes you know. And so I you know all the chickens were actually waiting because a lot of the time they're kind of keyed in and if there's not if the weather isn't great or there's not a huge amount to forage, you know, they'll come back naturally. So most of them are there and I start looking around and I realise that I'm missing Agnes. So my first thought is, oh no, is she going to be dead somewhere? Has she passed away? Was she, you know, picked up by a hawk? And then I thought, or maybe she's gone broody and she's sitting on some hidden eggs somewhere and I'm not going to see her again until she emerges with chicks. Because I've seen that happen quite a lot to other chicken keepers. Well, no, I'm looking around and I can kind of see through my neighbor's yard into the next yard and they have chickens there. But they've recently had to start penning the chickens because they were roaming too much, getting into neighbor's mulch and flower beds and causing a mess. And also some neighborhood children were coming over and like picking up the chickens to play with them, which is... Yeah, if if kids ever came over here to try and pick up my chickens, they're going to get an earful and also the rooster will probably attack them. But anyway, so they've been penning them up, but I swear I saw a chicken on her lawn. Now, I don't know the woman who lives there very well. and Things were a little awkward between us because she actually owned this house. So we bought this house from her um, and then she ended up moving two houses down. And it's just it's a weird relationship to have with the neighbor someone who you know sold their house to you uh, particularly because I think she would have stayed here forever if circumstances hadn't made it so they had to sell but anyway so I reached out to my neighbor that I do know well and I basically said you know if you have her number would you mind texting her and asking if my chicken's over there and um, you know they, she put me in a group text and yes my chicken was there she'd actually tried to catch Agnes and Agnes had run off so I'm sort of waiting to see her come back round the front and I'm really getting worried about it. But I was right in the middle of something I couldn't leave. And so finally, my husband finishes up his work for the day and he emerges from the study. And I just explain the situation and bless his heart, he went out. And Agnes was there at the run waiting to be let in, seeming kind of put out that she couldn't have just walked back home. So all this to say as much as I've been worrying that Agnes is coming up to the end of her life whether she is or not she is living her best life she is going on adventures she is stubborn and gorgeous and I think I'm just going to leave her to it hope for the best and maybe she has longer than I think. Pepper Jack the rooster continues to be a massive jerk Um, things have improved somewhat in the sense that his spring fever has cooled off and now once he's been told off he tends to back off for a couple of days to you know almost a week before he goes for me again Uh, but part of his problem is that um, he'll wait until my back is turned and so sometimes he manages to get me unexpectedly and like the other day he did that I have bruises all over my legs and thighs because he's so strong. And then when I pick him up to tell him off, he bites really hard. So I've had to start tucking his head under my armpit and then holding the rest of his body in like a prone position and just, you know, trying to get that guy to understand not to mess with me. But he continues to do so. That said, he is a good rooster for his girl. So, you know... I have to put up with it. In other chicken news, we had an interesting incident uh, last week. So we had some nice weather. I'm out on the deck and just sort of reading and relaxing and watching, you know, bees fly around and the birds and all that kind of stuff. And suddenly I heard the crows doing an alarm call. And it was the kind of alarm call that I actually hadn't heard before so usually if they see a hawk they start kind of mobbing the hawk and they'll make some calls to rally the family of of, uh, crows together to go after them and it's a very specific noise and it's probably one that you've heard if you have crows anywhere but this was very different, it was very strident, it it sounded worried, honestly, and it was followed by the chickens all making very loud box and bok, bop, bark, bark and just like there was something going on. So I got up, I went out of the fence, and I saw the chickens, and there was like a small group of hens under one tree, and then the rest of the chickens a couple of trees down with the rooster. And the small group of hens were the ones who were freaking out. They were making a huge racket. They were really upset. The crows had flown off. And I think what happened is that I suspect a hawk actually did make a play for one of the girls. And the crows dived in, kept the hawk away. And the chickens kind of ran and got separated. And the three hens who were away from the rest of the flock were the ones who might have been targeted. So after some sort of, you know, checking to make sure that no one was injured, I managed to get the three girls to join the flock. And at this point, the rooster was walking them back home. So, you know, I helped him kind of herd them and get them home. And as I'm counting them, I realized that we're missing a chicken. So I go back and I'm like looking over and, you know, there's no feathers. There's definitely, you know, the hawk didn't get any of the chickens. There's, There's no signs of that. But I'm still missing this girl and then all of a sudden I hear this really sad sounding like noise coming from under our boat and I lift up the cover and there is one of my ginger hens looking really freaked out and upset and probably got a little too close when that hawk dived is what I'm thinking there. So I was able to kind of get her out and then gently shoo her towards the flock. And I made sure they were all together, you know, and the rooster kind of checked her out a little bit and then made sure she joined in and everything was fine. And I'm sharing this not just because I thought it was interesting, but because if you have crows near you, are so many people who keep, you know, chickens or ducks or any kind of poultry have found that crows are really beneficial because they will guard their territory from hawks and by doing so, they also protect your own birds. So I'm super grateful to our crows. They, you know, sometimes nest in the fir trees. I don't think we're part of their main nesting area, but we're definitely part of their territory. And they don't come to the bird feeders probably they're just too big for them so my husband and I have been talking about making a raised platform feeder up near the fir trees and putting things out for the crows specifically to kind of build our relationship with them a little bit more because we're very grateful to them for looking after our girls. In other homesteady news, you know, things are blooming here, the forsythia, the daffodils. I saw a dandelion come up, finally, a little yellow flower. But I don't think we're in a nectar flow by any stretch of the imagination. You know, there's, there's pollen coming in on some of the trees and some flowers, but we have a ways to go until enough things are blooming that the nectar is going to start to flow. I have been able to spend a couple of hours here and there out in the garden mainly doing sort of cleanup but it's just nice to get out there to kind of grub in the dirt a bit to feel like I'm reconnecting with my land after this sort of long draining winter. Um, The ducklings that I sent to Uh, rescue are doing really really well the woman who runs the rescue is so nice she sent me a picture of them they're already sort of double the size they're doing really well she loves how friendly they are they're getting a outside time now because their adult feathers are coming in so it probably won't be long until they move outdoors permanently and it's so nice just to see them and know that they're in good hands My plan for getting ducks is still going to go ahead and after some research I've decided that I'm going to build the duck house myself but I'll probably buy um, a run for them just because I kind of priced it out and honestly there are some really affordable good runs available now that I think would work really well for just you know a very small gaggle of ducks so watch this space i'm in the process of pricing out material for building the duck house and once that starts i will be documenting it on my instagram and i'll share updates here in hive updates as you all know i'm down to the one colony um i had my neighbor he swung by again and he did a second oxalic acid vaporization treatment And I actually didn't get a big mite fall from the first treatment, which is a really good sign. So there were definitely mites there that I had to clean off the bottom board, but not at the level that I was worried about because, you know, as you know, mites were a big cause of my colony loss. And there were no mites that came off after the second treatment. So I'm feeling really good about that. I was starting to worry that this colony was like lagging behind other colonies in this area because I've seen a lot of other local beekeepers talking about how much brood they have and how some colonies are really exploding and they're worried about doing splits because you know it's not the best time this early for a queen to be mating but they're also worried that if they don't do splits you know the colony's going to swarm So I was worried because I hadn't seen any babies but I went in about a week ago and uh, there is some beautiful brood. So I saw a full frame of capped brood with four to five partial frames in various stages although most of them were capped. So the population is definitely building up and it was just so wonderful to see them getting into that spring um, reproduction mode. They do have a lot of honey left in there. And I've been leaving the feeder on because we are having cold nights still. And actually we have a cold front coming in starting tomorrow. Now, once the night temperatures are consistently above 50 degrees Fahrenheit, I will start putting syrup out to help them with, you know, uh, brood rearing and wax production. Although they are lucky enough that they don't need to make a lot of new wax because my frames already have um, comb on them. Um, so what else? Oh, and um, as I mentioned, so some some people locally are already talking about doing splits and then some people are talking about queen rearing. And I personally feel like it's way too early for that here. Um, so if you remember when we were going through Honeybee Democracy, uh, you know, and it's obviously all about the swarm process and Thomas Seeley, mentions that there will be a peak in drone production right before swarming starts. Now, right now, some people are seeing drone comb, which is a good sign. And some people are even seeing like quite a lot of drone comb. So for those people, wherever they are, I'm sort of like, okay, that makes sense. I can see why you'd want to consider maybe splits or queen rearing. But if you're in an area or if you're like me where you're not seeing drone comb in your colony and you feel like your colony isn't so full that you're at risk of them swarming, it's okay to wait. Um, at least that's what I'm telling myself. I'm not going to do any splits until I feel confident there, there are enough drones in the area before doing that because you know I let my queens open mate and if there aren't a lot of drones available that's going to be a poorly mated queen. Now I do have some swarm traps out and I might put a chemical lure in them soon either next week uh, or the week after just to be on the safe side and just to be optimistic. But I'm really just going to kind of watch my colony. I'm going to let them guide me in this process, and hopefully that will be the right decision. Okay, so let's dive in to chapter eight of Honeybee Democracy today. And this chapter is titled Steering the Flying Swarm. As with all the others, it opens with a quote. Much time I marvelled at the fruitless skill with which thou trackest out thy dwelling cave, winging thy way with seeming careless will from mount to plain o'er lake and winding wave. And that is by Thomas Smybert from The Wild Earth Bee, originally published in 1851. So chapter eight opens with a reminder about honeybee foragers. basically that they can fly 10 plus kilometers which is six plus miles from the hive in search of food honeybees as well as bumblebees navigate much like sailors with a compass for the bees this is the sun as we have seen with their waggle dances in previous chapters the sun is a key reference point for them to indicate direction honeybees also memorise landmarks in order to zero in on their discovered forage areas. This ability of bees to roam so far from home without becoming lost has long been a source of fascination and study for biologists and naturalists. But interest in how a honeybee swarm flies so cohesively has been mostly overlooked. And this is surprising if we consider that the swarm can travel several miles, crossing all manner of landscapes, including waterways, and then zero in on one small knot hole on the tree, which opens into the cavity that will be their new nest site. How is this incredible oriented group flight possible? How do the bees accomplish it? This chapter answers those questions. This next section is called Swarm Chasers. Seeley starts by telling us about a discovery of his first mentor, Roger Doc Morse. Morse and one of his students, Alphonse Aritabile, had discovered that a swarm of honeybees continuously monitor the presence of the queen substance pheromone within the swarm. Fun fact, a major component of this pheromone is secreted by the mandibular glands located in the queen's head. Its scientific name is e 9 oxo conoic acid or 9-O-D-A and it is a 10-carbon fatty acid. If the bees of the swarm continue to smell this pheromone they will continue their flight onwards but should it fade and eventually disappear because the queen has stopped somewhere to rest the swarm will cease their forward flight seek out the queen by her pheromone and then cluster back around her wherever she has come to rest. During their flight, it is clear that monitoring the presence of their queen is of primary importance. And of course, this makes sense because the queen is the reproductive heart of the colony. A swarm without a queen is not going to succeed. Now, Morse and Aritabiles sought to test whether 9-ODA is the primary indicator of a queen's presence. To do this, they set up artificial swarms with caged queens. When each swarm had discovered their chosen nest site and were ready to fly, they painted five worker bees with nine ODA. All of the swarms with these painted workers flew off and never returned swarms that were put in identical circumstances with the caged queen but had no workers painted with the 9 ODA did take flight however they only flew about 50 meters which is about 150 feet before returning to their caged queen and reforming the cluster around her so the study was a success 9 ODA is indeed critical to a swarm in flight believing that their queen is with them to quote Seeley To this day I feel sadness for the orphan swarms produced in this otherwise superb experiment and I absolutely share that It kind of made me sad to think about them but my hope is that these queenless bees from the experiment eventually drifted to other colonies and were welcomed in due to their full stomachs of honey or sugar syrup depending on what they'd been fed for the experiment. Now, one result of this experiment was Morses' interest in how a swarm conducts their flight. In 1997, he invited Kirk Vischer, who was a graduate student at the time, and Seeley to help him look closer into this issue. First, they decided to watch a swarm fly from the start to the finish. And so they went to Appledore Island, where they felt confident that they could control the swarm's flight path. They located a relatively straightforward path that would allow them to run beneath the swarm as it flew. And this involved like scoping out the terrain before positioning an 11,000 bee swarm and the nest box that would serve as the swarm's new home. The track that they were able to locate was roughly 350 metres, which is 1,150 feet in length, and they used flagged stakes to mark every 30 metres or 100 feet along it. They could then determine the flight speed of the swarm by noting when the centre of the swarm cloud passed each of these markers. It didn't take long for a scout from the swarm to locate the provided nest box and soon it was being advertised enthusiastically at the swarm cluster. Each bee that danced was marked with blue paint and they then noted the percentage of marked bees seen at the nest box at intervals of five minutes. Altogether they painted 143 scout bees and found an average of 29% of scouts at the box had a blue dot. This allowed them to estimate that approximately 495 bees had visited the nest box because 143 equals 29% times 495. This means that less than 5% of the 11,000 bees in the swarm were aware of their destination before they flew towards it. As for flight speed, they saw that the swarm hung over their intermediary resting spot where they'd gone after leaving the parent hive for about 30 seconds before moving slowly toward the nest box. The first 30 metres, or 100 feet, was flown at less than 1 kilometre per hour or half a mile per hour. But soon the swarm picked up to its top speed of eight kilometers per hour or five miles per hour after 150 meters or 500 feet most remarkably about 90 meters from the nest site the swarm began to gradually decrease its speed until coming to a halt less than five meters or 15 feet from the nest box and it just sort of hovered there in the air at this distance Within two minutes of arrival, the scout bees alighted by the nest site entrance in increasing numbers. There were five after 20 seconds and up to 100 after 90 seconds. These scout bees all released their Nazanav gland pheromone to show the other bees the way home. Within three minutes from the swarm's arrival, the bees were landing and covering the front of the nest box. They then began to march en masse through the entrance creating a whirlpool of bees that wheeled slowly around the entrance hole. Six minutes later, the queen entered the nest, and before 10 minutes had gone by, nearly all the bees had gone inside. Now, Seely credits this study period uh, to his love of swarm chasing, but he notes that he didn't return to these observations as a scientist until 25 years later, in the summer of 2004, he was joined in this study by Madeleine Beekman, a behavioural biologist from the Netherlands. Beekman was fascinated by the mystery of swarm flight guidance, an interest that grew during her postdoctoral studies in England where she worked with Francis Ratnick, who is a noted bee expert. Beekman and Seeley's first step was to consider how to improve the setup used in the Appledore Island study they wished to have greater control over the swarm's flight in order to record it in detail. So they decided on setting up swarms to fly across the meadow beside Seely's laboratory at the Little Field Station, which is just off the Cornell University campus. At the centre of this 65 acre expanse of grass was a large ash tree, and they used this to hang the nest box intended for the swarms to find and to select as their new home. Although there were surely natural nest sites in the area that could attract scout bees, Seely had already learned how to remove bees that danced for these rogue sites, and so he would continue to use this method to ensure that their nest box was the winner of the scout bees debate. So he's kind of cheating here <laughs> if you think about it, but it makes perfect sense from the study's standpoint. Their chosen flight path between where they mounted the swarms and the nest box on the ash tree was a total of 270 metres or 886 feet in length. They divided the flight path into 30 metres or 98 foot segments in order to calculate flight speed. For this experiment, Seeley and Beekman set up a launch pad which was a 20 by 20 metre or 66 by 66 foot closely mowed area of grass gridded with stakes set four meters apart and in which they had placed a six meter tall pole with one meter markings and they intended that this launch pad would provide accurate measurements of the dimensions of the swarm cloud as it took flight. Each swarm was positioned at the center of the launch pad and its length and width could be measured at takeoff thanks to the grid acting as a reference. They also took photos of each swarm from the side for later analysis of the movement pattern seen. All in all, they used three swarms, each of which contained about 11,500 bees, which is a median size of a natural swarm. Once in the air, the swarms moved as a cloud of bees some 10 metres or 33 foot long, 8 metres or 26 foot wide and 3 metres or 10 foot tall they flew about two metres or six foot above the ground, which was thankfully just over the observers' heads. Using these dimensions, Seeley and Beekman were able to calculate how far away each bee was spaced from, from one another. On average, the bees were positioned 27... Se- centimeters or 10 inches apart which gives a density of about 50 bees per cubic meters or 1.4 bees per cubic foot. Now despite this closeness rarely did the bees collide while in the air. As had been seen with the study on Appledore Island, each swarm initially moved slowly before gradually accelerating to a top speed of about 60 kilometres per hour or 4 miles per hour before slowing down gradually until coming to a smooth stop just before the nest box. They also witnessed the same behaviour of entry, the scout bees landing first and guiding the others in by releasing their Nazanov gland pheromone. As before, the whole swarm had moved into their new home within 10 minutes of arrival. The whole process from launch to flight to landing and entry took less than 15 minutes. That's one five minutes. This next section is called leaders and followers. Part of what makes a swarm's flight so fascinating is the knowledge that only a small percentage of the bees know the travel route and the destination. As mentioned previously, less than 5% of the swarm that Seeley, Fisher and Morse studied on Appledore Island had actually visited the nest box before flying to it to take up residence. This finding was confirmed during Seeley and Susanna Berman's study, mentioned in a previous chapter, that involved labelling bees and determining which nest site each scout advertised for. During this study, they found just 1.5 to 1.7 percent of the bees in a swarm perform dances for their chosen site. Furthermore, Celia and Vicious study on how scout bees transmit nest site quality in their dance, which was discussed in Chapter 6, found that 50 percent of scouts from a high quality site will dance for it. Combining these two figures gives an estimate of three to four percent of bees in a swarm that have actually been to the chosen nest site and can therefore navigate to it. This means that some 400 individual bees lead the swarm of 10,000 plus bees to their new home. How does this system of leaders and followers work? Well, there are three hypotheses. The first suggests that information is shared via a chemical signal. As a result of their study on queen sensing within a swarm by monitoring the 9 ODA she releases, Al Aritabile, Roger Morse, and Rolf Bock proposed the idea that scout bees guide the swarm using the pheromone produced in their Nazanov glands. The other two hypotheses posit that vision, not scent, is the primary form of information transfer. One hypothesis is called the subtle guide hypothesis and it suggests that scout bees do not actively signal to the swarm. Instead, they merely fly in the direction they know while the swarm follows them by sight. This was proposed in 2005 by a team of biologists from Princeton University in the U.S. and the Universities of Leeds and Bristol in England. These scientists made computer simulations of airborne swarms and demonstrated that if each bee in a swarm attempts to avoid collisions by turning away from bees within a certain close range, while also being attracted to and aligned with bees outside of this collision distance, then whether they flew towards the leading scout bees or away, the swarm would still be steered towards its new home. And this is an intriguing premise as it does not need many informed leaders, less than 5%, for the disparate swarm to be guided safely to the new nest site. The other vision-based hypothesis is called the streaker bee hypothesis and was suggested by Martin Lindauer in 1955. Lindauer observed that with every swarm he had watched, several hundred bees would always fly swiftly to the front of the swarm cloud and always in the direction of the chosen nest site these guiding bees would eventually fall back to the border of the slowly moving swarm cloud before once more flying rapidly to the front of it. Thus, this streaker bee hypothesis proposes that these high-speed flights are actually directional signals, guiding the swarm to continue in the right direction. This hypothesis also suggests that the bees of the swarm fly in the same way as those in the subtle guide hypothesis, avoiding collisions and aligning themselves with other bees. But it suggests that the bees of the swarm preferentially align with the streaker bees specifically. To quote Seeley, So the two key differences between the subtle guide and the streaker bee hypothesis are whether or not the informed bees, leaders, point the way with high speed flights and whether or not the ignorant bees, followers, favour alignment with fast flying bees. Computer simulations have found each hypothesis to be a plausible mechanism of swarm flight guidance. But does that mean they're true? This next section is called Scent Organ Sealed Shut. After examining the flights of swarms across the meadow at the Little Field Station, Seely and his collaborator, Madeleine Beekman, decided to determine whether scout bees led the swarm by using attraction pheromones produced by their Nazanov gland. To do this, they decided to seal this scent organ shut so that no pheromone could be released. The center organ of a honeybee worker lies on the upper surface of their abdomen at the front edge of the last abdominal segment. It's made up of hundreds of gland cells, the Nazanov gland, named for the Russian scientist who first described it in 1883. And the ducts of this open onto the membrane that connects the last two plates of the upper abdomen. The secretion from these ducts consists mainly of citral, geranial, and neurolic acid, and apparently smells quite pleasantly of lemon. And I have to be honest here, I can't say I've ever really noticed this scent before, but now I'll be keeping a close nose out. This secretion collects on the membrane between the two plates, which are also called tergites. Due to how these plates or tergites are positioned, usually this area of membrane is concealed. However, a worker bee can consciously expose the membrane, thus releasing the scent, by bending the apical, which is the topmost seg- segment of her abdomen, downward. And I'm going to share a graphic from the book on my website, which you can find in the Uh, episode description because it's a really nifty little graphic it very clearly shows how this whole process works. Now it's possible to prevent a bee from exposing this area by carefully painting over the joint between these two plates. It took Seeley and Beekman a while to find a paint that lasted for longer than a few days but finally they succeeded. Now, to prepare their test swarms, they would immobilise 10 to 20 bees by placing them in the refrigerator until the bees were in a chill torpor. Then they would put the bees on ice and paint that closed their scent organ by painting over the joint of those two plates. Then they would pour the still immobilised bees into a screened cage with their queen. And this was repeated until they had 4,000 bees painted. And this would be the treatment swarm. They also prepared control swarms to make sure that this process of chilling and painting the bees was not affecting their behaviour. These 4000 control bees were handled identically, but they had their thorax painted instead of their abdomen. Ultimately, Beekman and Seeley used six swarms, three treatment swarms and three control swarms and both types formed similar clouds when flying and both types flew directly and swiftly to the nest box. Both types of swarms flew at speeds seen previously with that initial smooth acceleration to top speed followed by a gradual slowdown and an easy stop at the nest site. The key difference found was how long it took each type of swarm to move into the nest box. The control swarms took just nine minutes on average to go inside, whereas the treated swarms took 20 minutes on average. So basically twice as long. And this makes sense when we consider that previous observations had shown how scout bees alight upon the box first and then release their Nazanoff gland pheromones to mark the entrance of the new home and guide the rest of the swarm in. Now, the poor scouts who'd had their abdomen sealed uh, still were desperately trying to release their Nazanoff gland pheromones. They had their abdomens raised in the air and they were whirring their little wings furiously, but to no avail. Now, to test that the paint held for all the bees, Seely and Beekman inspected 250 bees from each swarm shortly after they had all moved into the nest box. And they found that less than 1% of them had cracked paint seals. And this is an acceptable number for the experiment. So what does all this tell us? Well, since both types of swarms flew directly and swiftly to their chosen nest site, we can conclude that the leading scout bees do not guide their flying sisters using the Nazanov gland pheromone. This next section is called streams of streakers. Now, Seely and Beekman decided that they've tested this gland pheromone hypothesis. So let's test the streaker bee hypothesis. And they had witnessed the same behaviour that had led Lindauer to propose this theory, but they weren't confident that their visual observations were correct, and nor did they have any kind of data to support it. So initially, they decided to use conventional photography to capture a swarm in flight. They used a 35mm camera colour transparency film with a slow film speed and a moderately long exposure time 1 30th of a second. Using this to photograph a swarm from the side under a clear sky they could get the entire swarm cloud captured within a single photo with the individual bees appearing as small dark streaks. And these small dark streaks actually told them quite a lot, such as a bee's flight speed, flight angle relative to the horizon, as well as her orientation. Incredibly, these photos showed that a small minority of bees do in fact fly through the swarm at maximum flight speed of 34 kilometres per hour, which is 20 miles per hour, while the majority of the swarm fly much more slowly. These fast-flying bees were also more likely to be horizontal in orientation, which indicates a straight and level flight. These streaker bees tended to position themselves in the top of the swarm cloud, which makes sense when we consider that this positioning offers better visibility to the follower bees, especially when positioned against the background of a bright sky. This following section is called Computer Vision Algorithms for Tracking Bees. The aforementioned photographic study was illuminating and it did provide support for the Streaker bee hypothesis, but it wasn't conclusive and it didn't address the key difference between the Streaker bee hypothesis and that of the subtle guide hypothesis. The key to which hypothesis is correct rests on whether or not the rapid flying beads of the swarm point mainly forward toward the intended goal. The subtle guide hypothesis predicts that these bees will not be heading mainly in the correct direction because it posits that the informed bees do not signal travel direction with high speed flight. The streaker bee hypothesis, in contrast, does predict that these bees will be heading mainly in the correct direction because it posits that these speedy bees are the informed bees directing their sister with the fast flight speed. To determine which hypothesis is correct, one would need to be able to track individual bees within the swarm and measure their position, their flight direction and their flight speed. In 2006, this became possible and it did demonstrate that the high speed flying bees in a swarm are indeed flying directly to the new nest site. Two individuals were instrumental in developing the tools that allowed this tracking of individual bees within a flying swarm. Kevin Pesino, Professor of Electrical and Computer Engineering at Ohio State University, and his brilliant graduate student, Kevin Schultz. Now, Seeley had first met Kevin Pesino in 2002 when he was visiting OSU to guest lecture. Upon meeting, Seeley immediately felt that a collaboration would be of benefit to both of their areas of study. He saw in Pesino an engineer who was often inspired by biological systems. This fusion of engineering and biology is called biomimicry and was at the time and still kind of today considered a hot approach among control engineers. Biomimicry, incidentally, is what my husband specializes in and he focuses on reptile and amphibian locomotion as his biological systems that guide him in building robotics. But back to the book. Seeley uh, and Pesino were eager to someday collaborate on a honeybee project, bringing Pesino's um, engineering knowledge with Seeley's biology knowledge. So after Seeley and Beekman had published the results of their photographic analysis of the honeybee swarms in flight, Kevin Passino realised that the next step was to record a flying swarm using a high-definition video camera. He felt that point tracking algorithms invented by engineers working on computer vision would allow them to track individual bees within the swarm while also enabling them to determine their position within the cloud, as well as their flight speed and their direction. And so Pesino, Seeley and Kirkfisher headed to Appledore Island in the summer of 2006 to do just that. The goal was to record a swarm as it flew over the camera at two points along the flight path at 15 metres or 50 feet from its intermediate resting site, when the swarm would be flying more slowly, and then again at 60 metres or 200 feet when it would be at or near top speed. So the men set up the swarm by the old Coast Guard building at the island centre. And a nest box was placed on the eastern shore 250 meters or 820 feet away. The camera used had a wide angle lens to enable it to include most of the swarm clouds width, but not its length. It also had a high shutter speed, one ten thousandths of a second, so that it could capture each bee as a blob as opposed to a streak, which was what had happened in the photographic study. Their greatest challenge actually came from the winds on the island. In fact, it's so blustery there that a wind turbine was built in 2007 to harness some of that immense natural energy. And high winds dramatically affect a swarm's flight path as the bees are buffeted about and they face increasing flying resistance. It would be difficult, maybe even impossible, to get a swarm to fly directly over the placed markers in these kind of windy conditions. Thankfully, on June 29th and July 2nd, the men experienced calm, little to no wind days and twice captured a swarm flying over the 15 and 60 metre markers. Once they had these two recordings, they handed them over to graduate student Kevin Schultz, who over a period of two years created a computer algorithm that semi-automated the data gathering process. Basically, this algorithm enabled the tracking of a single bee from frame to frame using a pairing protocol that relied on orientation and the shape of the bee itself. Now, full disclosure, the technical description for this in the book is quite long and confusing, but I feel like I have summarized this down and any errors in translation are entirely my own. Crucially... The size of the blob the bee indicates the height of the bee above the camera which allows one to distinguish between bees at the top and bottom of the swarm as well as the space between. This in turn enables three-dimensional reconstruction of the individual bees flight within the swarm and Seely is extremely excited about this in the book. Now, aside from the sheer impressive accomplishment of this algorithm, one key fact started to emerge. The fast-flying streaker bees were indeed flying in the direction of the chosen nest site. In fact, analysis showed that the fastest bees were flying directly home, while the slowest ones were headed in the opposite direction. The fast bees were also positioned primarily in the top portion of the swarm cloud, confirming Seeley and Beekman's suspicions based on their previous observations. While examining the peaks and flight speeds within the swarm, Seeley noted that the peaks are higher at the front section of the swarm cloud, indicating that the fastest bees are not just positioned at the upper portion of the swarm, but also at the front. Analysis also indicated that bees tended to increase their speed as they moved from the rear of the swarm cloud to the front. Sealy posits that this is likely due to the ignorant bees speeding up in order to follow the leader bees. As more individual bees pick up their speed, more bees around them are influenced to do the same, causing a chain reaction that could explain the smooth acceleration to top speed witnessed in the swarm flight. Now, all of this made Seely, Pacino and Schultz conclude that it is the streaker bees, not the subtle guys, that provide flight guidance to the airborne swarm. And I will share a link to the full published paper on their findings in both the show notes and over on my website so that if you want to read it, you can do so. Sealy states that he would like to test this theory further by somehow preventing the streaker bees from moving so fast in order to see what effect this has on the swarm. But so far he's not been able to find a method that slows the bees without completely stopping them from flying or acting otherwise normally. One issue he came up uh, against was that um, anything that kind of slowed the bees also made the scouts. Basically, stop scouting, which obviously is going to affect the study in a completely other way. Now, that said, Madeleine Beekman and two students, Tanya Lathy and Michael Duncan, did try a different approach to test the streaker bee hypothesis. They managed to direct fast flying forager bees through an airborne swarm entering from the side of the swarm cloud. If the streaker bee hypothesis holds true, the forager bees would create conflicting directional information, thereby disrupting the swarm's flight path. And that's exactly what happened. They tested six swarms, all attempting to fly 100 metres or 330 feet to a nest box, while forager bees were flying quickly back and forth across their path. Of the six swarms, only one reached the nest box intact and it was actually knocked off course temporarily before it was able to correct itself. The other five swarms either broke apart or were led far off course. Beekman and the students also flew four control swarms, which were identical to the test swarms in every way, but without the forager interruption. And all of these swarms flew directly and cohesively to the nest box. This clever experiment further supports the streaker bee hypothesis. And now we move on to the last section called assembling the flight navigators. Seely points out how many questions about honeybee swarms in flight are still left unanswered. How does the swarm trigger the slowdown witnessed before arriving at the nest? How do the leader bees move through the swarm? Do they stop in the air and allow the cloud of bees behind them to overtake them? Or do they drop low and underneath the swarm cloud where they can't be seen so they can circle to the back? How does the swarm know they have enough leader bees to take them safely home? What is particularly striking to Seely is the way that almost all the scout bees at the chosen nest site will abandon it to return to the swarm cluster throughout his studies he's seen this so many times that he knows that it indicates that a decision has been made and the swarm is about to take flight so basically what he's talking about here is that the number of scout bees at a chosen nest site grows and grows and then suddenly they all abandon it and return to the swarm cluster what makes all the scout bees return before this takeoff Is it simply that they are visiting the swarm as usual and then pick up on flight readying behavior like worker piping or buzz running? Or is there yet some unknown signal that lets them know that they must return to the swarm for departure? To quote Seeley, I wouldn't be surprised if the bees possess some secret gadgetry for ensuring that a swarm about to take flight is well stocked with the informed bees who can pilot it safely to its new home. And that's it for chapter eight. So next up in two weeks, we have chapter nine, which is called Swarm as Cognitive Entity. And then all we have left is chapter 10 and the epilogue, which I will be combining into one episode because the epilogue is very short. So we are almost done, two more episodes and we have completed Honeybee Democracy. So this is the part of the episode now where I'm about to do some personal updates. So if you want to skip that, then I will say thank you so much for listening I hope you are enjoying everything that we have been discussing Uh, I do find this extremely interesting I've never been fortunate enough to witness a swarm in flight but fingers crossed one day it happens so I hope you will join me back here in two weeks as we continue on to chapter nine and I say thank you again for listening and take care now, for those of you sticking around, just a couple of quick personal updates. Uh, I am finally allowed to share the news that my husband won a career grant to fund five years of his research. This is a really big deal and I'm super, super, super proud of him. So, yay, Husbeast. Um Yeah, it's just it's really wonderful. It's, it's great for his career. It's great for his research. Um, it's a huge accomplishment and I'm just over the moon about it. I've known actually about it for a while, but I wasn't allowed to say anything. So I'm just really pleased to share that news. Now, if you follow my personal Instagram, which is at Britty you will have seen that I've been using tarot cards to help me focus and ground myself lately. And um, I used to read tarot a long time ago, and I've been relearning the tarot system of the major and minor arcanas and their meanings. But mainly I find that it's helping me create kind of a journal-based meditation practice and I've been finding it very beneficial. Now, because it's me, I really wanted a bee-themed tarot. And sadly, there's only one, which is really bizarre to me. I feel like bees are such wonderful natural teachers. I'm shocked that more people haven't used their imagery. Now, the tarot that I found is called the Journey of the Sacred Bee Tarot. And I did share... um, the related oracle on my page. So, the Journey of the Sacred Bee Tarot is currently sold out, although I'm really, really hoping that the creator will do a second printing but what is happening right now is that the creator of the sacred bee tarot is making a sacred bee oracle deck and it's being funded through kickstarter and i shared that on my instagram pages i also immediately funded it and i'm very eager to get my hands on the deck and i really recommend checking out her page which is still live the kickstarter is still running at the time of this recording now Oracle decks don't follow the traditional tarot card system. Instead, they rely heavily on symbolism and imagery to kind of offer up a focal point for you to think about, maybe meditate on. Now, some people use them with tarot cards to get like another look at a reading and others use them simply as a meditation practice. It's something that they can sort of lose themselves in, consider the imagery, think about what kind of feelings it's bringing up or memories or just use it to hold in their mind while they breathe through meditation. And I think however you choose to use them, they're definitely a beautiful, uplifting tool. I am super excited about this project, and I thought that my, follow bee, my fellow beekeepers and bee appreciators might like it too. So I'm going to drop the links to both the Tarot and the Kickstarter page for the Oracle in the episode description and over on my website. Also it's important to know that the creator of this deck donates a token of the proceeds for everything that she sells to the Bee Conservancy which is a really great charitable organisation and I will share the link to that charity as well. Now with spring and sunnier days comes an uplift in my mood so I'm chugging along pretty well at the moment. Um, The only downside is that I get really overwhelmed by the sheer wealth of things that I can do every time there's a nice day. You know, I can take the dogs out. I can do some hive time. I can do some gardening. I can do some cleaning or whatever. And it's just it can be hard to prioritize and know what needs work and what doesn't um, because I really just want to have the time to do it all. I'm also super excited to share that I have scheduled my first COVID-19 vaccination for next month, It's sort of in the middle of April. I'm really excited. Um, It's making me feel like travel might be on the horizon later this year, which means that um, I can go visit my mom and my brother in England or they can come and visit me. You know, it also means that things like our Thanksgiving traditions where my in-laws visit us could be back on. And then our Christmas of visiting them could also happen. So, you know, I'm trying not to get ahead of myself. We, we just got into spring. There's so much left to do, but I don't know. I'm feeling really hopeful about it. Um, and I hope everyone listening has access to the vaccine uh, already or very very soon so that's kind of me in a nutshell right now um, things are going pretty good fingers crossed touch wood all that stuff I hope you guys are doing super well I hope your colonies are good I hope your homesteads are good uh, stay safe out there yes with the vaccines hopefully things going to improve but it's still important to take precautions you know take care of yourselves be safe So I hope you'll be back to join me in two weeks when we move on to chapter nine and we get through this book review together. So in the meantime, take care, you know, wash your hands, wear a mask, and as always, hug your hands and then wash your hands. (laughs) Thank you so much for listening. Take care. Bye bye.